today's a really special day because I have the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody that I greatly admire and respect and somebody who's had a profound impact on me personally and uh, academically and professionally. And so this is something that I'm really looking forward to. I'll stop talking now. Patricia <laughs> Stark, the longtime faculty advisor of the Santa Barbara City College student newspaper, The Channels, recently retired, so embarking on a sort of new venture in life. Patricia, how are you today? I'm good, Josh. How are you? Good to see I, you again. <laughs> yeah, nice seeing you. I'm doing well, doing a million things, running my daughter around to various camps and drop-offs and pickups while I'm trying to get my work in during the day. So it's just another typical day for me. Um, Patricia, I met you when I was 20 years old and I was taking classes at Santa Barbara City College. I was a accounting major and I'm one of those many students who wandered into your classroom not really knowing what they wanted to do and uh, falling in love with journalism because of you and your teaching style and so that's what I want to talk about today I want to talk about you as a teacher a lot of people who've not been in your classroom or know the students who've interacted with you may not know of your sort of profound impact on generations of people who've gone into journalism. You are kind of this quiet force in the community, this journalism force. And I meet people all the time who say, oh, you're on the channels? I, I was on the channels. And I'm like, oh, you know Patricia? Oh, yeah, Patricia was great. You know, So I hear those stories. So I'm really excited about talking to you about journalism, teaching, you as a person, and then sort of maybe pontificating a little bit on the industry. Patricia, you spent, what, 30 years as a teacher? Yep. Um, big question, but <laughs> talk to me about what that experience was like and, and how you were able to go in there day after day and just teach and have such impact and influence on students. Well, let me let me say thank you very much for for talking about them, the positive influence I've had on you and others. Um, I should also share that um, you were an outstanding student from the beginning, um, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about you know Josh the student later. But um, the, the the whole question of teaching, you know, I've had two big jobs in my life. For nine years, I was a newspaper reporter in the Bay Area working for the Contra Costa Times chain, which at the time was independently owned, had a large circulation in the East Bay Area. And that was a really big job. And then I moved to Santa Barbara and took over as the single full-time journalism professor at Santa Barbara City College. Um, and that was also another big job. So when I reflect on it in, in retirement, you have a lot of time to reflect. I, I think about these things. Um, I had two jobs that I never watched the clock. I never thought, wow, you know, when's this day going to end? If I watched the clock, it was for the opposite reason. It was, oh, my gosh, there's so much we need to get done and I'm, I'm running out of time. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people can't say that. So I'm really grateful for that. Um, 
I never had to wonder in the morning, is there a reason for me to get out of bed? Um, both of my jobs as a journalist first, as a practicing journalist, and then as an instructor, um, there was a huge sense of purpose. And I never had to search very hard for that sense of purpose. It was there. Um, I took a few notes, so I'm going to just look here. Mm -hmm. um, I have been, there's, I've been all of my professional life engaged in two enterprises that I think are vitally important to this country, but were personally important to me. And one is journalism, and I know we'll talk a lot about that today. And the other one is education. And it's just been such a privilege to be able to combine those two year after year after year and be able to work with um, young people who, and that's, that's a, that, and I think probably I should have put that at the top of the list because over 30 years, um, I have worked with hundreds, thousands of young people, and we can talk about where they are today and the various fields they've been, gone into. But it really is true that they have kept me young and vital and engaged um, because that's just the nature of working with an ever-changing group of, of people who are bringing you fresh ideas, new personalities, things of that type. But also when thinking about both of my jobs, there was the young audience. I mean, there were young people I was working with, but also, and Josh, now I consider you part of, I'm consider, you're actually in both groups. <laughs> I've always been um, so happy to have colleagues um, that were very like-minded <laughs> in, in certain ways, but like colleagues who were incredibly intelligent, but at the same time, there's something about journalism and community college teachers. There's a high degree of compassion there. Um, you know, you don't teach at a community college if all you want to do is publish and have fame and, and you know, to be, to, be, um, to be well known. You teach at a community college, or at least I did for a different reason. So, um, yeah, you know, all of those things, I, I look back with such a sense of gratitude um, that I made the choices I made. And honestly, and we can talk about this, too, that it was in the time that it was, um, you know, I graduated from graduate school at Berkeley in 1984, went to work immediately for newspapers. So, um, I, I worked for newspapers at a time where they still really mattered. We had, we really had no competition other than broadcast media. Um, and we were, we had great jobs. We were well-paid. We didn't always feel like we were getting fired the next day. A lot of things that really threaten the news media today. I, I didn't experience that. No. So um, yeah. And, you know, look at you uh, walking <laughs> Testament to um, to the to the success, and you know, I can talk more about when I walk in a classroom, um, how I handled those diverse group of students. Because you know, in any community college classroom, particularly in the intro classes, you're going to see everything from students who could have gone to any of the finest universities in the country, um, people in the middle, and then those students who can barely write a sentence. And so, the challenge of community college journalists journalism is reaching all those groups. Yeah. And so let me talk about that a little bit, because mm -hmm. I have a very good perspective on your teaching style in that sense was 
Um, when I walked into your classroom, I thought I was a fine writer, you know, decent writer. Um, I had a lot of ideas in my head. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. And you found me amid a class. And back then, there were probably at least 30 students in the classroom. I remember large classes. You were able to identify my set of needs versus the other two groups that you mentioned and be able to teach to me while also teaching to those students, quite frankly, who were at a higher level at that time in terms of their writing ability and their just sort of ability to navigate college. You were able to be everything to everybody at times in the classroom. And that's a real hallmark of a really good teacher. You, what people may or may not know about you is that you're not a, a journalism advisor who sort of walks around and kind of gives advice here and there and then goes back and does your work. You're an excellent writer. And I think one of the things that I immediately learned from you was, wow, <laughs> I need to get better. I need to be a better writer. <laughs> there are people who are writing at levels that are so impressive. And this person is one of them. Uh, short sentences, precision, saying the most, using the least amount of words, knowing that power comes from conciseness and not rambling, you know, and, and long paragraphs. And so that was a wake-up call. And to be honest, and I want to ask you about this, you can be intimidating in the classroom because you are so confident, you have such high standards, and you don't call all your students. For somebody right out of the high school system, <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is different than what had happened. But can you talk to me about your approach? Uh, with me, I, I tell everyone who ever asked me and some who don't, Trisha gave me tough love at the beginning and it worked. It's exactly what I needed because I didn't need somebody else to say to me, you'll be okay. I need somebody else to say, wow, you have a lot of potential, but we're going to have to work to get there. And that's okay. what you did. Talk to me about your approach to students when, when you see this wide gamut of abilities. Um, well, let me address one thing first, and that's the whole tough love idea. Um, I have been consistently praised and criticized um, by my students for exactly that. Um, and what I strived, what I try to do, <laughs> whatever the past tense of strived is, um, I have found that most students actually do want what it is that you wanted. And that if you set high expectations, if you can, if you if a teacher can find the time and the energy to, to, to couple those expectations with attention and engagement. In other words, I can if I can tell you this is this is where you need to work but I'm with you there when you're working. I'm gonna show you how to make it better. I'm gonna consistently read what you write and give you feedback on how to make it better. I can show you how to make it better. I think that that attention connected with the expectations, they, they two have to be together. Um, and I have to add a third component here, Josh, and here I'm gonna talk about you for a little while. And you know, I've said this to your face, so I'll say it to your audience. When you joined, you were in that middle group mm -hmm. um, and you were you were for better or for worse 
in a cohort of some of the most brilliant students I've ever had. <laughs> that was an extraordinary few years. And I'll just cut to the chase and tell you that Josh was the outstanding student in journalism. <laughs> so he managed to um, he managed to overcome. But when I read your work, I could see right away. And you know, I, I told you, I've told you this right away, right. is Josh, you need to start reading. Yeah. Because I could see how hard you were working, but your writing lacked flow. It lacked rhythm. It lacked a voice. And actually, I, I, I read your stuff now and I just go, whoa, <laughs> did he ever find that voice? Um, and I'm like too much voice now. <laughs> and the, the component, the third component is the willingness of the student to, to get involved in that in that relationship. And I think one of the reasons you were able to be so successful, both at the channels and then in your subsequent career, is how hungry you were for that advice. So, you know, that's kind of the perfect alchemy is, is a teacher who, um, who can recognize talent or recognize some degree of talent in every student because something's there in every single student and be able to um, be able to find a way to really elevate that without crushing a student's spirit. And it really helps if the student has somewhat good self-esteem, if they can hear criticism, you were always eager for it. Um, some students, you have to really be very, very careful with that. And then the other thing about journalism, this made the job really challenging is we took the student newspaper very seriously. I did. And my bent was always toward the watchdog role of the student news media. Um, I always really posed the program in such a way that we covered all of the different government um, shared governance groups. And um, what was what was my thought here? Um, so when you have a student newspaper that's reporting on shared governance, that's um, trying to do it all, your readers expect accuracy. <laughs> the readers who were the campus community, and we were a very well-read newspaper, the channels, they expect context, they expect balance, they expect accuracy, they expect um, grammatical writing, they expect writing that's easy to read. In other words, they're expecting the New York Times. <laughs> And, and I was working with students who often could not write a complete sentence or didn't recognize where a complete sentence ends and another one begins, comma splice run-ons. And I deeply believe, and I think most educators would agree with this, that the most significant learning occurs when you make mistakes. And you do things that you, that you, you, you know, whatever, you do it, you try it, it doesn't work, you try it differently and you get better. That's how people learn. And we had a lot of time on campus. I had a lot of time on campus trying to explain to administrators or other faculty members that journalism majors have as much right to make mistakes <laughs> as every other student on campus. It's just our mistakes are printed mm -hmm. and shared with thousands and thousands of readers. Um, that, that was a challenge at the campus. And that's a challenge, by the way, that never went away. Mm -hmm. I was at Santa Barbara City College for 30 years. I advised the student newspaper for 28 of those years. And um, that never went away. Now, I should also say, for, for your audience, the last two years of my tenure at City College, I stepped out of the advising role, and I became president of the Academic Senate. 
And during those years, Josh actually stepped in for me as acting advisor. So I think you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes. That's just this crazy kind of um, duality is you got a group of students who have a right to a learning experience that includes making mistakes and a group and but you're writing for a newspaper for an audience that expects the highest quality and always is not very patient about the students making mistakes. Yeah, and that's a good point because that goes to the whole media literacy <clears throat> issue and landscape. I mean, that happens today among really intelligent adults um, when they're reading, not quite understanding the context of what they're reading and who's putting that out in the community college context and the college context. These students need the ability to learn from their mistakes and mm -hmm. they shouldn't be shamed. <laughs> they should not be attacked by high level administrators who are upset or teachers, faculty about a story. Um, it's a student learning program and they're getting better. I want to talk to you or just sort of mention one thing when you talk about reading, because you were absolutely right. Uh, I always loved reading as a kid, but the kind of reading that I did in high school was newspaper, magazine, not a lot of books. Mm -hmm. And so you picked up on that right away because you were this well-read and you knew, you said, this is a different kind of thing is writing's choppy and there's no flow. I tell this story. I don't know if I've actually told this to you. This was a profound change in me was uh, we, for whatever reason, were doing profiles on the, the candidates running for Santa Barbara city council. And we were doing, this was with the days of the newspaper and we were doing a, a center spread. And um, I got assigned a couple council members to ask a few questions. You know, what will you do for Santa Barbara City College students? And I was in the old channels lab in the campus center. And I was in one of the cubicles, kind of, I had a phone book, a real thick phone book. And I was sort of, this is how clueless I was, right? So I'm, you're aging I, both of us here. You're, you're uh, giving away our age. I know. Talk about um, the phone book. <laughs> it was not an iPhone. It was not the internet. It's a phone book. And I was trying to figure out how to call. These are people running for council. And so I'm trying to figure out how to call Santa Barbara City Hall to see if I can leave a message or find somebody just clueless. And um, I'm going through and I'm flipping through and I'm in the white pages, which is sort of the residential part of the phone book. And, you know, any student who's ever been in your, your classroom in the lab kind of knows, like, where's Patricia? Is Patricia five feet away, 10 feet away? Is she in her audience? Can she at any moment see what I'm doing? Can she walk in and say, well, what, you know, are you working or not, right? And so I sort of, like, had this, like, I don't know where Patricia is. She's not here. And all of a sudden, you know, I turned around and you're looking over my shoulder. And you grab the phone book. And I'm grabbed, this is maybe not grabbed, obviously in recollection, everything's more dramatic, but you flip to the yellow pages, right? Or to the, to the front pages, the government section. And you went to where the government listings are and you went to Santa Barbara City Hall and you pointed, you got to the page and you pointed at it. And with two hands, you kind of just dropped it on the desk in front of me. And of course, I'm just like sitting there. And then you looked at me and said, <laughs> I guess I'm going to have to give a lecture on how to read a phone book. <laughs> and I just thought that was just, I don't know how I felt in the moment, you know, but today I'm like, that's awesome. That was the greatest thing you could have said to me. And I think what it did, at least for someone like me is wake me up 
to look in the mirror to say, I should know where the government listings are. There are students in this room who can run circles around me and I need to be more like that. And I need to work harder to, to put myself in a position to be successful. And had you come over to me and said something like, oh, Josh, let me help you. Here's where it is. Maybe that would have worked. But for me, like, I don't need that. I just need somebody to say, you can do this, do it. Okay. And I love that story because I don't have many, I'm not going to go into all those, but those types of, those types of things that impacted me and your style of teaching is one of high standards, high accountability. Can you talk to me about when that works and when that doesn't work? We do know there are students out there who will say, I didn't like the channels. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's going to come up. Um, how do you determine, like, this student wants it, this student does it, and how do you work with those students who are clearly resistant to wanting that style in that moment? Well, you know, one of the things that we talked about talking about is the way my, my, my um, teaching style changed over the years. And when I first came into my work at the channels, I was straight out of newspapers. And in newspapers, we talk about the brutality of the daily deadline. Yeah. which means when you work for newspapers, which by the way, are a fabulous experience, um, but nothing really matters in terms of your feelings. Mm. Um, you know, I have told my students, I have, there, there's just no creature on earth I have felt such hatred and loathing for as an editor, right? <laughs> um, because <laughs> they were all powerful and they could just, you know, so... In terms of, let me just say as a disclaimer that the, the nature of being an advisor at a student newspaper, especially one like ours, which was big and ambitious and you know well-funded and lot really big newspapers, is I was in the newsroom with you guys at least three, sometimes four days a week for eight, 10 on publication days, 12 hours. It's hard to be the perfect instructor <laughs> <laughs> for 12 hours. So I'm sure students could come out with a lot of, you know, Patricia stories. They used to, people used to like literally write some of my sayings on the blackboard, on the whiteboard. <laughs> I would just be, you know, you know, a little bit eccentric and sometimes a little bit appropriate. But what I've discovered, Josh, is this, the technique I worked for you worked for you. And over the years, I think I actually got better at distinguishing how to work with different categories of students. You know, a lot of, there's been a, a, so much research that's been done on what is successful teaching. You know, what does it look like? What are the characteristics? And the one thing, the one meta thing that rises out of every study is the question, is, is, is the skill of engagement, the, the way that the instructor can engage with the student. And I kind of keep going back to that throughout everything that I say. And at the beginning, I really only had one way of engaging with students, and that was the newspaper editor model. You know, you're, you're publishing a newspaper, you got to get it right, you got to learn this stuff, and you got to learn it in a hurry. And I'm going to push you to do that. But what I, what I learned over the years, and, you know, I'm glad I learned it, is that these different students bring different qualities and skills and areas of intelligences, if I can use that. And that's why I think the channels experiment, if you would, it was so successful. 
is, you know, you had certain areas that you were very strong at. We had students who could not write at all, but they could take photographs. Mm. Or we had students who were super well organized. They would be assignment editors. Mm. They could learn how to organize this big mass of what, everything going out there into a clearly defined news budget for the students. We have people who have great interpersonal skills. They're great interviewers. And then we have people who just are born editors. And I think the reason, and then later, of course, when we went online, we brought in videographers and graphic designers, you know, people who really never wrote at all other than, you know, graphic things and headlines. So you can see it's just pulling on all these different types of intelligences, these different types of skills. And that's, I think, what made the channel so successful. And, and if I can, you know, you know this, but I'm sure the readers don't. For many years, we were always among the top five or three um, community college newspapers in the state in terms of recognition, awards, both regional, state, internet, I mean, national, not international. <laughs> um, be, we were successful. Um, and we were successful, not just in terms of educating students, but actually creating that product. And I think it's because journalism became um, it was the organizing principle around a really profound educational experience. Mm. And that profound educational experience required, to some extent, me being able to really see every student and see what they best could do. So I think my style softened, if I can use that term, a lot over the years. Um, and I think that the program was better for it. And I think that a lot of my students were better for it. I have students who could not take any criticism at all. Mm -hmm. They had to be, I had to work with them very, very carefully. You know, just things like some students couldn't bear to see anything on their writing, on their papers. And so I started using um, video feedback. Mm. Um, where I would do something like this or, or audio feedback. I'd instead of critiquing their story this way, I would, I would do an audio clip and I'd always do you know, the sandwich. You start with the good, you put the criticism at the middle and then you finish with the positive, you know, the criticism sandwich, the critique sandwich. And students who couldn't bear to see red or blue or purple ink on their paper would really like to hear a more, a different way of doing this. So, you know, there was just, that was part of the fun and the, and the um, excitement of the job is just always looking for new and better ways to reach people, to engage people. And, um, you know, like I said, what worked for you in those days, I don't know if that would work these days. I think that students, um, I might get in trouble for saying this, but I, my, toward the end of my tenure, I was fi finding that students were coming in. Well, you know, everybody, everybody of a certain age says this, hmm. you know, text messaging, writing online, the lack of formal writing is really making itself felt in college writing classes. Yeah. And um, so I had to, you know, as things went in, as the media went into different types of delivery methods, I had to go into different type of delivery methods as well to try to keep up. Yeah. And, and that's a good hallmark of a good teacher is changing and being flexible. And you're still constantly learning yourself and how you teach students. You referenced the heyday, right? And that was my era. Mm. 
before me, you remember you had this editor, Josh Fisher, Joshua Fisher, who, mm-hmm. I mean, I had heard the legend of Joshua Fisher, <laughs> how great he was. I never worked with him. But Daniel Jimenez and Elise Johnson and Colin Powers and Maya Hansen and Christiana Bertelson and just some of the people off the top of my head who were so good. But what I want, what I want, and I want to transition here to the community college student is what I don't think a lot of people understand is that a lot of people, you know, go to high school, there's a race to go to college, a university to transfer that whole game. You need to go somewhere prestigious and your parents are happy and, and everyone's experience is different. But there's something so unique about a community college student because in your case specifically, and I'm sure many other teachers at Santa Barbara City College and community colleges, you actually become the pivotal defining point in somebody's life. The point where they're going this way and you turn them this way. Mm-hmm. They're going this way and you steer them where to the point where they may not be journalists today, Patricia, but what you taught them gave them the skills and the confidence to find what they wanted. And that's what they're doing. And that's what the greatest thing about community colleges is that you find these students who are just as capable as the ones going to Harvard or Stanford or Berkeley, and you're rescuing them to some degree and helping them find themselves. Why, why community college for you? You could have taught anywhere. Uh, you would have been well-respected in any university, but can you talk to me about the community college student and why that appealed to you and why you had such a passion for that demographic? Um, well, I Santa Barbara City College because they're the ones who offer me the job. <laughs> right. On the coast, yes. Um, yeah, I actually, um, it's a, li- a little tiny bit of a personal story. Um, I was... Um, working as a political reporter and also covering Contra Costa County for the Contra Costa Times. And it was the spring of 19, um, it would have been 1989. And I was very, very busy. Um, And, but I used to, my first job out of graduate school was covering education for the newspaper chain. So I was on this, uh, this mailing list from the chancellor's office. it was an it was an affirmative action mailing list, and basically I, I got it because I was the education reporter in the past, and I used to mostly just glance at it and then you know put it in the verti- in the, the garbage can because um, I, I didn't cover education anymore. But one day it caught my eye and it said Santa Barbara City College full time journalism instructor, and we didn't talk about it, but I actually got my first journalism training at Santa Barbara City College. Um, I moved to Santa Barbara right after graduating from Louisiana State University and went, went to the, through the channels myself and based on that one year experience got accepted into graduate school at Berkeley. So I was looking at this, this, um, this list and I thought, Santa Barbara, I'd like to go back and visit there, never thinking I would get hired for this position because I you know, didn't really have any teaching experience, but I thought, wouldn't it be fun to go back to Santa Barbara and, and spend the weekend? Um, so I applied and, um, there's just so many interesting things about this story. One of my letters of recommendation, my editor wrote it while she was in labor. Um, so it was a very short letter. Um, but anyway, 
miracle of miracles, I got the interview. And um, the first interview went very well. It was fun visiting city, Santa Barbara City College. But on the day of the second interview, um, I, my husband and I were driving down and I had been up most of that night. Um, I had, first off, I, that the evening before I had moderated the television debate on an important election coming up. Then I had gone back to the office and spent all night writing, um, writing a weekend piece, an analysis piece. And then I jumped in the car. I was driving down and I started feeling sick, at my sick to my stomach and blah, 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 blah. But about five minutes before my final interview with Peter McDougall and John Romo, I discovered that I'm pregnant. <laughs> so anyway, I, um, I decided to switch careers, go to Santa, become a teacher and switch locations all at the same time. Um, and honestly, the fact that it was Santa Barbara had a lot to do with it. And on the fact that the channels had changed my life and had shown me my future was really meaningful, meaningful to me. It just, I cannot describe the feeling of coming back to this college as an instructor, which is a feeling I'm sure you know, because yeah. you now work and teach in the journalism program. Community colleges are, a, they're just a miraculous institution. I, um, I, think, I think if I were given the choice to teach um, at the university level, I'm not sure I would I would choose it because I don't think I, th I don't think that kind of the kind of experiences we've been talking about would happen a feeling that th that sense of purpose of being able to to really guide people and find them and to some degree rescue them honestly when students are lost. Um, I think that we are a marvelous institution. We're open access, which means we turn no one away. Um, as an instructor, I can tell you that we are hired, we are trained, we are paid to teach. And at Santa Barbara particularly, but I know many other colleges, we got just superb training on, on how to be a good teacher. Believe me, the first couple of years, I mean, the fact that you got an education, I'm really glad to hear that because <laughs> first few years, <laughs> it, was, it was pretty rough. But just, you know, we were just always inundated with opportunities to do better. And so, you know, for a certain type of, of person who wanted a certain type of job, um, it, 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 was just, it was just a great opportunity. And, you know, Josh, you talk about, you know, Josh Fisher and Elise and, and Colin and all, all of these people who are still very real to me and I'm still in touch with many of them. I've heard from, from, from former students year after year after year letters that just gladden my heart because what they say is exactly what you say. And that is, I walked in, you saw something in me, you showed me what the future could be. And I want, to, I want to say two things. One is that I talked about how the channels was how the journalism became this perfect organizing principle for people with different skills. Um, the, the number one thing people talk to me about, and by the way, very few of my students are working in the, in the news media now. They have good jobs, but they're not working in the news media. So what they learned at the channels was first off leadership. And probably the most important thing they learned is that they could do this. And that kind of gets back to those high standards is they came in feeling um, like major imposter syndrome. Can I do this? No, I can't do this. And they left knowing they could do it. And what students have told me is you showed me that if I could do this, I could do anything. Mm 
And boy, that that's really important. Um, So your, you know, your original question, teaching at a community college, um, it's the perfect job for an instructor who's a people person (laughs) because it's all about the students. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, as a journalist, it would have been nice if I could have continued writing, you know, long magazine articles. Part of the reason I didn't do that is I also had two children, two sons, and I wanted to be really engaged with them. Um, But there is no better place for an instructor to be if if he or she or they really want to feel like they're making a difference. And, you know, that gives me quite, quite a bit of pride. And those letters from students, you know, really saying, I went to Berkeley, you know, watch, watch what I'm going to say here. I went to Berkeley, I went to UCLA, you know, I went to USC, um, I went, you know, to some degree, you know, East Coast colleges, and none of them gave me the experience that I had at Santa Barbara City College. And that's not, by the way, that's not just the journalism dep- department, my colleagues and all, all across the campus um, you know, say the same kinds of things. So, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I talked to some of, you know, I in contact with some of the people I went to school with back in the nineties and they will tell me Patricia is the best teacher I ever had. And <laughs> even though they, some of them have master's degrees and have gone on, I mean, they've been very well educated. So that's a real thing. That's not promotional. And we hear that from other teachers at city college, because it's just a place where, where you care. I want to talk about your career a little bit and I don't actually know a whole lot about this part of you so I'm really interested in this and that um, you know you you clearly have this incredible impact on so many students at the college but before that you're a pretty good journalist you know you 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 were I, w- I can imagine you being sort of a bulldog reporter and not somebody who would uh, not um, you would demand answers for sure and I can imagine sources being very very bothered with you. Um, so, and you're also this good writer, so you could story storytell. And you know, you shared a little bit of your work in the class over the years. Your Ogalis feature, I remember that um, as something like, "Wow, this is a, you know, this is such a sad story, but it's such a well written story." And 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 you shared that. But can you talk to me about your journalism career and how you approached uh, the craft industry? I mean, you found that that. Uh, letter where you said, "Hello, oh, I'm going to apply to this job," but you probably very easily just could have been a teacher your whole or, uh, a reporter, an editor your whole career too. You know? Yeah, um, you know, I used to. I mean, I didn't tell you a real, real big reason I left journalism. I left newspaper reporting is because I was I was pregnant, and I used to sit next to our our um, our, our our city editor. I worked in a government bureau with about a dozen, about no, about eight different reporters and our editor would sit right there. And every night around deadline, I'd hear her on the phone fighting with her husband because she <laughs> couldn't pick up the kids on time. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I loved being a reporter. And again, it was kind of the golden age of journalism. So I graduated from Berkeley in 1984 and immediately got a job um, with the Contra Costa Times chain. And it was a zoned newspaper. I don't know how well you know the Bay Area, but Contra Costa County starts north of Alameda County. So it includes Albany, Richmond, parts north, all the way up to um, Vallejo, the Carquinas Bridge, and then extends eastward all the way into Antioch. Um, Walnut Creek, Concord, Pleasant Hill, all of those areas. And we had, I think, four different newspapers zoned. 
And my first job was covering education. I covered the Richmond School Board. And um, Richmond is a very interesting city. <laughs> so, you know, some of the issues we have now around conflicts over diversity and, you know, wokeness, if you will. Um, I was there in some of the early days of that. And also, um, it, it went, and I actually won a state award for this story. I was able to witness in Richmond um, the, 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 the development of a very strong Hispanic voice in the role of their school board and the policies of their college. I mean, in the 18 months I had that job, I literally saw this group go from beginning to, uh, to the level where it was affecting policy. And so, um, you know, that was very exciting. But I, um, I got promoted and I moved from the West region, which was Richmond, over to um, covering education for the whole county, but the focus on Central County. Did that for a little while. And then I got what was my final job. And I worked, I worked a little while on the desk, meaning as an editor. Mm -hmm. um, but I really wanted to get back in the field. And then I got my plum job was I covered county government. And actually there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight of us in that bureau. And my area was um, social services and health services. And, um, and I was back up in, in politics and I was back up for transportation. I was back up for environmental. I was back up for the courts. And that this is when um, the, the scourge of crack cocaine was devastating in inner cities. This is when um, homelessness was becoming um, a big political issue. So I was right there. And these are some of the stories that I, I shared with my classes. I was really right there um, when these stories, which have become very familiar now, were emerging. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was um, just incredibly interesting to be some of the, one of the first people to be writing those stories. And, and I, I really felt that um, people needed to see what I was seeing. And that, that's where the, that, and that is where the writing comes in, is how do you write a terribly hard story, but make it in a way that's readable? And I remember the lead of, I did a series of stories around crack cocaine in the inner cities and the impact it was having. And I remember the lead of one of them was, um, Two thoughts came to Deborah Bernstein when she went into labor for her 10th child. One was to call the paramedics. The other was to grab her crack pipe. And I interviewed this woman when she was in prison. And, you know, how do you tell these stories in a way that people feel compassion and want to try to help as opposed to, you know, have, you know, there, there was just, there was a, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but I did it and, um, and I had done it for a number of years and then it was time for a change. Mm -hmm. So um, stepped away from that and stepped in, into education, but I'm so glad I had, it was a very intense experience where I felt like um, I really had taken it about as far as I could go. And I was just ready for a change. I was in my early thirties. I had done this all during my twenties and um, Hey, Santa Barbara called, you know, <laughs> it's a beautiful place to be. What uh, and that's a fantastic lead, by the way. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, what um, did you encounter any sort of uh, discrimination um, as a, a female reporter um, in the 
late 80s? What were some of the things you had to deal with in terms of how sources treated you? Did they take you seriously? Did you make them take you seriously? And you know, maybe use this as opportunity to talk again, teach about how hard it is to be a journalist and depending on, you know, what you look like, people treat you differently. You know? Well, you know, I was cute. Um, you know, <laughs> I was, I was young and cute. Um, but, and I'm going to say something now that, you know, my children would have major issues with. Um, and that is, I had the power of my newspaper behind me. And I took myself very seriously. And this is something I, I tell my students, I told my students, again, I got a little pushback from that, but I dressed the part. Um, you know, I took what I wore very seriously. I took the way I acted very seriously. I tried to be approachable and friendly, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I couldn't let my guard down. No. I actually, the short answer to your question is no. Um, I, was, I was given amazing opportunities. And, um, and I was taken very seriously, but I think that's because I had the power of the newspaper behind me. And, you know, as the internet gained prominence and the news, news media, the mainstream news media became under attack, too powerful to this, to that, you know, sets the wrong agenda. My response has always been, journalists need that power. You know, we need that power to be taken seriously. Otherwise, we're too easy to ignore and people don't return our phone calls and we get shut out of things and we can't do our job. So, no, that discrimination wasn't really a problem. I think by then there were enough women in the profession. Now, we weren't we didn't have a lot of editors, mm -hmm. um, but we had a lot of female reporters. But people had to take me seriously because I had, you know, hundreds of thousands of readers. And I could, um, it was power. There's no other word for it. But, you know, coupled with that, it's just enormous responsibility. You know that. You yeah. know, you just, you know, you can't get drunk on the power because it has so many, you know, concurrent responsibilities that, that go with it. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a challenge even, even today. Um, and I wanted you to talk about the state of journalism is that, people push back on what we do from wherever their lens is. We're, we're to this, we're to that, we're not enough of this, we're that, um, you know, uh, we, we're, we're biased because we're too far over here, but then that group says you're not far enough. And people don't understand also media and, and, and the different types of storytelling. People read a headline on social media and they comment and then they don't actually read the story. Uh, people think that you should have an opinion in your story. I'll give you an example. A month ago, I was covering a Santa Barbara Unified School Board meeting. There were 50 teachers protesting outside of the building. I love protests because great photo opportunities. And so I'm there, I'm taking my photos and these teachers are unhappy with the district. One of these teachers, this is a, a like a very well-respected teacher, smart, well-educated, says to me, do you want to uh, be in the photo? I can take a picture of you with them. Right? And I thought he was joking, you know, and I kind of looked at him and, you know, I huh, kind of blew him off. He's like, no, no, seriously, you know, I get a photo with you. And I said, I was like, okay, I can be a jerk here or I can work, fall on my 
teaching and I said, you know, um, it would be unethical for me to be in a photo with the people that I'm reporting on because if I did so, it would be hard for me to have credibility when I'm talking to the people inside the building who disagree with your perspective. And I said, can you imagine if you saw me taking a photo with them and yucking it up? Like, wouldn't you feel like I can't trust that reporter? And this teacher froze. This teacher was like, I never really thought about that. <laughs> and it's like all these little things that we do every day, people aren't even aware of them. But what is your take on the state of the media right now? Well, it's so me, different. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to talk about two things. Okay. One is I'm going to talk about that whole people don't have a clue what journalism is about thing. Yeah. And then I'm going to talk about the state of the media. Okay. So you talked earlier about what, what, what was my approach to teaching? What were kind of the big themes I wanted to get across? Um, it was it was true even at the beginning, but it became more true over the years as the media market compressed, the news media market got smaller, that I felt um, a dual mission, if you will. And it became, I, ha I had to teach, you know, introduction to journalism. This was a skills class. So I had to teach basic news, re news reporting and news writing. But I always felt it was incredibly important that everyone who left a journalism class at Santa Barbara, Santa Barbara City College understood better than the average bear um, what journalism was all about. And so that, I mean, one idea, one story pops to mind is I had a group of intro students who attended um, a city a student, student senate meeting because their assignment was to cover it. And they were, the Senate was talking about something controversial. So one of my students joined in and started being part of the discussion. And that student got an F on the assignment. And I got criticism for that. He was very, very upset. But I had to bring home the point in a really meaningful way. There were lots of opportunities, by the way, for that student to bring his grade back up. <laughs> that as a journalist, you are an outside observer. You can't become part of the story. Just exactly what you talked about. So I, I really try to have a little bit of meta journalism with every single lesson. And that is every single lesson was, okay, this is what it's like to be a, a working journalist. This is how journalism works. This is how news outlets work. These are the challenges. These are the the ethics of the profession. These are the legal constraints. These are the commercial constraints. I wanted them to understand the importance of journalism in their lives as members of a, a participatory democracy. Mm -hmm. That in order for people to live and engage meaningfully with their government, now we're segueing into topic number two, then they really had to have access to facts what we used to consider objective facts, but people needed that for democracy to work. And I, I hope that every student who left my class wouldn't be that teacher who doesn't understand <laughs> that you can't grab the reporter and make them part of the story or part of the image. Yeah. Um, I think that's almost as important as any media, any, any journalist that I trained, it's all the students that learned about the news media because of Santa Barbara City College. Right. And the state of the media today, well, you know, so much. Um, enormous issues of trust. Um, the former president did us no favors, right. although I got to tell you, 
New York Times made a lot of money when Donald Trump was president. Um, the polarization is, is, is really scary. And of course, that came with the collapse of the prominence of the mainstream media and, you know, in the niche media, people, gravi- people gravitating toward news sources that are, that are uh, that, uh, along with people who are politically minded, you know, they have the same political political beliefs and therefore people are just becoming deeper and deeper involved in their own beliefs rather than opening up um challenges to freedom of the press now i mean we've got clarence thomas on the supreme court talking about overturning new york times v sullivan which is the seminal um protection for journalists to be able to cover politicians and make mistakes without having to be worry about being sued for libel and um losing everything that they own um, you know, we grapple so much these days with the whole what we used to call balance, you know, the so-called false equivalence. Like when I was coming up and when you were coming up, we had to get both sides of the story. Yeah. It didn't matter how specious the other side was. They had to be a couple of paragraphs in there about the other side of the story. Well, that's that's really being questioned now. Um, what social media is doing, um, you know, just just a little bit of a side. The channels went online only about a decade before I ended my career. I can't remember exactly what year. And it was a confluence of circumstances. We lost our local printer. Um, We had, I lost my assistant. There were all these different reasons, but we decided to go online only and really capitalize on that, on that, um, on, on that, you know, work more in video, work more in all the different delivery methods, search engine optimization, all of that. But what started happening is comments started coming in that were so vicious and so hateful and so personal. So you have an 18 year old student who writes a column about one of their life experiences and ventures bravely to put an opinion out there and they get savaged in these comments. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know if I could have been successful with the type of hatred that's directed toward practitioners now. Um, and so the channels even debated whether or not we have comment to include comments. I know the independent no longer uses them because that people just get so, so mean and hateful in that. So, um, you know, the, the advice I give to anyone who I can advise, who's willing to listen is break away from the curated media, Mm. you know, and, and this is stuff I tell my own children who are, you know, progressive and, and, you know, they have very strong points of view, but also students, you know, grab some mainstream media and read it, you know, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post, read, read these newspapers, read magazines that across the spectrum, don't let some other, you know, curator determine everything that you're seeing, because you're, you're not really going to be a well-informed um, citizen. And you're only going to be, have more and more conviction around points which really could easily be challenged by this, by the way, goes to both extremes, the left and the right. Um, So yeah, you know, but but, you know, let me tell you something, Josh, I pulled this survey out yesterday when I was thinking about this, this month, June 14th, 2020, the Pointer Institute, which is a nonprofit journalism, um, journalism research body in, in St. Petersburg, Florida, they published an article about a Pew study that was just done. 
And it, they asked 12,000 journalists for their view of their work. And they discovered, and this, I find this so interesting, 70, specifically 70% 70 of the journalists they interviewed said they were very or somewhat satisfied with their job. And 77% said that they would do exactly the same thing if they had it to do over again. And then this was the other thing I found very interesting. This whole question of um, people gravitating toward a new source that just reinforces their own belief. Mm -hmm. 75% of the journalists they talked about agree with me. <laughs> they say that's a major problem. The public though, they also at the same time talked to how many adults, how many members of the public? I'll have to search for that, but you know, it's, it's Pew doing this. So it's a good research. Only 39% of non-journalists thought this polarization was a problem. Oh, yeah. And I think that's, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Journalists say, this is a problem, folks. And yet the public doesn't, or at least the majority of the public doesn't see it. Yeah, there's that gap. And that's really unfortunate. I, yeah. everything you said is, is, is right on in my experience. I get criticized as, you know, the dual role. I'm part-time teacher, full-time journalist. Um, I get criticized for giving people platforms. Like, why did you include that? Um, they don't deserve this and that. And it's 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 been about 10 years, a little less than that, you know, kind of going in that direction. It's like, well, we don't, we don't just talk to people we agree with. Um, we just don't talk to the popular opinion. There's something to be learned from everyone. And I always sort of tell my students that you have to be comfortable being disliked. <laughs> If you're going to be a journalist and i think that's the challenge for a lot of young journalists is that i mean that was a good thing with you too you know if you learn on the channels if you learn at your community college or your university paper what it's like to take constructive criticism from the people you respect when people you don't know and don't respect criticize you you learn to not care he's like it's you know, I'll hear it, but it's not going to affect me deep in my core because these people don't know what I do. And you, this is what comes up is that people will say that you need to only write about this issue. You can't write about this issue. Don't give people this platform and they will attack you. And I think one of the great lessons of anyone watching or any students is you have to learn that if you're doing your job well, people are going to be mad at you. <laughs> and that's normal. We are not doing PR. We're not providing content. We're not giving information that is palatable to everyone. We're shining a light on systems that are broken. <laughs> and when you do that, you threaten power. And when you threaten power, people get upset. People get angry. And I think people forget that. And it's, this is the key point. It's not just the systems that you don't like. It's the systems you might like too, that also deserve this kind of reporting. Because people love journalism when it's in New York or San Francisco or LA or the Pulitzers come out and they're like, 
wow, why can't we do that in Santa Barbara? It's like, well, when we do that in Santa Barbara, you guys get upset. You say, wow, that's not true. You know, and so I think it's part of that. And I have to say with you, I never knew your political affiliations. I don't even know them now. I have a sense, but I don't know them. You never talked about them in the classroom. You never said this or that. And, you know, to criticize Donald Trump does not mean you're anything because everybody criticizes Donald Trump, right? Well, is, we are so. enemies, you know. He, I'm his enemy, he's mine. So there you go. Enemy of the people. Right. But I, I think it's with, I wear that badge with honor, by the way, which will tell you a little bit about my politics. <laughs> but this never, I think a lot of people think that these teachers go to the classroom with today, we're going to talk about what I think about the world. And there may be some classes like that, but certainly not the journalism classes. Um, do you see any hope for the state of the media, Patricia? We know that, you know, we are still churning out students. They love reporting. Uh, they still want to be journalists. How do we switch this around where we sort of go back to this state? And maybe it's not going back, but where we go to the stage where we're just well-funded, people yeah. are paying for our stories, advertising. I mean, it's so, so complex, but what do you sort of see as the future? Well, people way smarter than me and in much higher positions have been trying to crack this nut for a long time. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to say, and I've had this conversation with parents of my students, a journalism degree is a great degree. Mm -hmm. But I have to be very honest that a, a shrinking number of journalism majors are going to get jobs in the news media because there's a shrinking number of news media outlets. Um, but at the same time, um, journalism encompasses, comprises public relations, um, a lot of video journalism, broadcast, visual, that kind of stuff. And, and they're in high demand. Journalism majors are in high demand because of the skills that we teach them. So the major itself, I mean, it, it's astounding to me how programs are not shrinking. I mean, the major journalism programs in this country at the four-year level are still, some of them are still impacted. So that'll tell you that people, people are getting jobs. They're just not getting in that feeder system that we used to have where you start off with your small local, then you go bigger, and then you go to work for the Washington Post or the New York Times or the, or the Chronicle or the LA Times, et cetera. That pipeline is, is, is not what it was. Um, but I mean, I tell people, you know, the number one um, employer of people with degrees in public relations is the U.S. government. <laughs> people go to work for the government because government needs good writers, researchers, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I'll go back to this, this Pew study, which was really interesting. Um, and it said that most working journalists now, older ones more so than younger ones, which will tell you, new, newly minted journalists are having more trouble. They actually are feeling very positive about the growth opportunities in the profession. This is the kind of stuff that drove you and me as an instructor crazy, because we not only had to teach all of these skills that we taught before, but we also have to now teach podcasting and we had to teach how to do a video story. And they had, we had to teach what, you know, what's called search engine optimization, which is how do the students write stories and headlines and graphics so that they would be prominent in a Google search. Um, all of these extra things we had to teach, but those are all growth areas in, in journalism. And the journalists who are working for the major news outlets now actually feel very optimistic about these different avenues that their newspapers are moving in, or their news organizations. 
Um, for young journalists and students of color, there, is, there are very, very exciting opportunities out there with online only publications. And uh, you know, when I was teaching during that horrible Zoom year, um, I, had, I had a list of, when I say the horrible Zoom year, I mean, everybody at City College was teaching online. Overnight, um, I would have a list of these different outlets where a lot of young journalists were were doing doing on these sites what they used to do at their local newspaper, and that is honing their craft, finding their voice, learning the, you know the good, the bad, the ugly of the profession. So we can't give up, Josh. It's it's just where politics showing. Where would we be right now if we did not have the New York Times and the Washington Post and Politico and all of these organizations in the last over the over the the Trump administration? I mean, where where would we be and where would we be now if um, if we didn't have our news organizations constantly reminding us that democracy is at great risk and all of the different incremental reasons this it's a pretty dark time, yeah. um, but in dark times, you need to use your loot to shine a light on everything that is going on. So what you do teaching, what I did, um, it's, it's never been more important. And it, does, it doesn't matter if it's attacked. Um, we've always had to have very thick skin in this profession and we have to continue to do that because our work is more vital than ever before. Yeah, well, definitely well said. I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about you. Uh, one of the things I've always found about you, even though we're total opposites and very different, I've always found you relatable in the sense of that you had a sense of struggle in you, that you were uh, always overcoming something, and you had clearly not been somebody who was entitled or privileged to use, you know the terms we talk about now. Um, I never felt as though you were talking down to me. I always felt as though you kind of got me. And so I'm interested in knowing a little bit about your own experience, um, how you grew up and how you found journalism. And I mean, did you, my double-barreled question, let's stop there. Talk to me about your own experience (laughs) growing up and what that was like. Well, okay, I'm a Cajun. (laughs) Um, I was born and raised in a little town called White Castle, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Um, We tell people that we grew up, there wasn't even um, a stoplight in town. Now there's a stoplight. Um, My mother went to the third grade and my dad went to the seventh. And I was the youngest of six children, Catholic family. I asked my mom once, why didn't they practice birth control? And she said, we did. Um, anyway, um, and my dad was, um, he wasn't really a sharecropper. He was, his form was too big, but he was a tenant farmer. He never owned his land. It was a sugarcane farmer. Mm -hmm. He never owned his land and we had good years and we had bad years. Um, when I was five and six, respectively, we had two hurricanes in a row, hurricane Hilda, hurricane Betsy. My dad's entire crop was wiped out. So for all the time I was in elementary school, we were very, very poor. Um, My folks never owned their house until they retired. So um, what you're hearing here is um, 
I mean, thank goodness I had five older brothers and sisters because, and, and thank goodness for Catholic schools, I have to tell you. I, I was reading Nick Welch's column about Catholic education and I was going, you're so right. You know, you go to Catholic schools and you, you're well-educated. I did not come from, from a background of wealth or comfort. I did come from a background, a background of privilege and that we were white. And my folks, especially my mother, had this value. I don't know where she got it, but her kids were going to be educated, got started, and nothing was going to get in the way of that. So even though our house was falling down shack, we had books everywhere, you know, Encyclopedia Britannica. My mom, my mom subscribed to the great book series. So, you know, we have Plato and Shakespeare and all these, you know, people around. So yeah, um, I went to Catholic schools and then the nuns were great. And, um, and I was the youngest of six and my brothers and sisters were smart. So that really helped. I read early just because I wanted to keep up. Um, graduated from high school, went to Louisiana State University. I was an English major, English lit major in social sciences. And then, um, you know, loved college, always loved college, loved, always loved to English lit, you know, loved to read. So that's why my advice to you is read, read, read. And then, um, and this is a very personal kind of thing. Um, I married my college sweetheart and he got into Brooks in Santa Barbara. So we moved out to Santa Barbara. It was in 1978. If you remember, that's the year we passed Proposition 13 and government agencies were laying people off like crazy. So here I am, I have a degree in English and history and I moved to Santa Barbara in August of, and I think Prop 13 was passed that June. I could not get a job for love or money. So I did a variety of, of small jobs. And um, after about a year of this, I applied to a, a writing job at, at UCS, UCSB and they had me take a writing test and I did really well. And somebody in their human resources department said, you know, no one's gonna hire you without clips. And you did very well on this and you have you know, good degrees and all, but no one's gonna hire you without clips. Santa Barbara City College, which I'm not even sure I had ever heard of, um, has this really good journalism program with a little student newspaper. Why don't you go there, get some clips and come back and visit us and uh, reapply. So I went ahead and I took some journalism courses and it was just, man, I was ready. You know, I, it was just such a direct hit, sort of like with your experience. I just thought this is so great. It's so hard, but it's so great. Um, so I did a year at the channels and based on that, I applied to Berkeley and I got into Berkeley. Mm. So, um, if you thought you were surrounded by smarter people in your journalism, one-on-one class on the channels, I got to Berkeley and the, the how it took my breath away, mm -hmm. how fast they were, people were all from elite colleges. I went to LSU and Santa Barbara city college and I just, you know, very, you know, it was scary, scary imposter syndrome. So what do you do? You work harder, you work, you work, you work, you work. Um, and, th and that's what I always did. But what I had going for me is my folks had instilled a value of education, had make made sure I had a good foundation. Um, I got a lot of lucky breaks. I also have to say my folks, and this is where the privilege comes in. Um, yes, by then my folks had more means and my mom gave us a lot of money to support me in these years. Um, not, not after I started working, but during the education years. Um, and also my mom believed 
she just thought I was wonderful, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is something for all the parents is she just, just thought I was so wonderful that I could do anything. And you know that you really internalize that and, and you start kind of believing it yourself. But Josh, I've always, I mean, I've had imposter syndrome my entire life. I've always felt like, you know, the little girl from White Castle, Louisiana, whose parents were not educated. You know, I had no mentors. When I think of how I mentored my, my children, like when my older son was ready to choose his college, you know, we did the East Coast tour and <laughs> I helped him with his essays. You know, he'd send his essays to me and I would say too passive and, you know, your sentence is too long. I had none of that. And, you know, I'm not sure that was a bad thing, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, what's the answer? The answer was education. Yeah. It was, um, you know, the, those, those nuns were great. Um, Louisiana State University, large public university, had a fabulous education there. University of California Graduate School, what can I say? Um, and, you know, that coupled with supportive parents, an incredibly supportive spouse, um, and some white privilege and lucky breaks. Yeah. That's how it yeah. happened. Yeah. And, you know, going to your point, having to work for everything that you get um, matters. I think we all, we're all guilty of this as parents, people who've overcome so much. We want to give our kids everything we can. And if we don't, we feel like failures, but at the yeah. same time, part of what it made us so tough was we had to go through those things. And so it's like, we want to give them a lot, but not too much, but then they are our kids. So we don't want them to feel how we felt. So let's just give them everything we can. But are, is that how much is too much of a good thing? You mentioned your husband. I want to just sort of put, probably make you uncomfortable here, but one of the themes of your entire life or my entire experience with you is that you've constantly talked about how difficult life is, um, you know, being a teacher, raising two kids, but that your husband has always been sort of like the rock of your existence. <laughs> um, so can you talk a little bit about him? Honestly, I don't know anything about him um, other than he's brilliant and he <laughs> is, uh, you know, one of the reasons why you've been able to do everything you've done, uh, you know, in your adult life. Um, what does he do and what, what kind of, <laughs> I'm just always sort of like curious, like, like who is the man who Patricia Stark is married to and, and, and talk like about Dolly your... Parton. I keep my husband in the shadows. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My no. husband's name is Bill and um, he's retired now. Oh. I mean, his retirement was one of the reasons I wanted to retire because, oh. you know, um, and yeah, he's, he, oh man, he's, he is just, um, he's the, he's just the, uh, the perfect guy for me. Um, you know, people always say we're going to have, a, we got married in 1983. So we're closing in on a really significant anniversary. And people always say, what's the, what's the, what's the, um, you know, what's the, what's the answer to a happy marriage? And I go, you got to pick the right guy. Um, he also, I can tell you, um, was, um, He's also the product of a community college because when we moved up to Berkeley, um, he went to Contra Costa Community College and took a few programming classes. And this was the time where, um, you know, just programming, computer programming was, was, was all over, you know, was, was very much in demand. 
And after two semesters, he started getting recruited. And so he spent his professional life the whole time I was at City College. And when I was a reporter, he's always worked in the computer industry. He's always worked for um, commercial businesses, um, computer programming, what's called um, computer analysis, database management. He, he says that he puts puzzles together for a living. <laughs> so um, the and so so there is that. But you know, like my mother, he just always made me feel like he thought I was terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really understate, you know, what that does. He has been a marvelous father um, and ve- very hands-on. And you know, Josh, you know, I I know you well enough to know the kind of dad you are. So there's some real similarities there. I just, I can't think of anything I would like more than my two sons to grow up to be the kind of man my husband is. Um, And really, you know, what can you say? You love them, you give them values, and then you you give them wings. And, um, you know, he's he's really been there for me and he's really been there for them. So another really lucky um, break for me. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's amazing. It's so good to, to hear that. Um, as we sort of wrap up here, I want to sort of like give you an opportunity to, to talk about some sort of advice to, to young journalists. You're not in the classroom anymore, uh, but you've done this forever and students I know still reach out to you. What advice do you have to somebody who wants to be a reporter, who wants to be a journalist? Uh, what would you say to them to just sort of encourage them to? see if that that's for them. Well, while not meaning to diminish in any way the kind of struggle young people face today, because mm-hmm. I tend to be in despair a lot of time about the world that, that we're leaving them. I think some of the things that, that have always been true are still true. And that is, um, I mean, if, you're, if you find journalism and it's your passion, that's really good. A lot of students, that passion is too strong. You know, it's not really a passion. It's just, I need something that's interesting, that's engaging. So um, I, I keep getting back to that word engagement. Um, you know, if, if this is for you, if you like journalism, immerse yourself in it. And I do believe you will be successful. Now, your success may not look the same as mine, and it may not look na- five years from now, what it looks like now. I mean, you know this, Josh, you've had to reinvent yourself a few times. Um, but if this is for you, then give it your all and, and, and work really hard and totally engage in it. And there will be something there for you. Um, I don't know exactly what it will be. Um, but that's really kind of up to young people today to create the kind of world they want. You know, my, my age is, my time is, 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 you know, we're, we're going in the, into the shadows now. I don't mean to sound like I'm going to die tomorrow, but this really is a world that um, our students are going to, they're going to make it the way they want it to be. Mm-hmm. And so um, journalism's not going away. We still need incredibly ethical people. We need knowledgeable people with broad knowledge of a lot of different things. And you're just not going to get that by sitting at your computer on social media. You know, you're going to have to go out in the world. You're going to have to go into uncomfortable situations. You're going to have to keep learning. Um, 
this is not a profession for people who want to relax and slack. It never has been, and it isn't now. That hasn't gotten any easier. But if you can find a way to engage with it and to make some strategic choices and honestly be willing to move, be willing to relocate, um, not be too attached to any one region, then there still are opportunities out there. And like the 77% of the people in the Pew study, um, I'm not sure there are a whole lot of professions where three out of four people would say, I'd do exactly the same thing again yeah. if I had the chance to do it. This work is meaningful and it's important. And, you know, what more can you say if you're that kind of person that needs it, who needs um, a reason to get out of bed in the morning, who doesn't want to stare at the clock and wonder, when can I go home? Then this is the profession for you, but it's going to take everything you've got. Yeah. Yeah, well said. And I, I got to tell you, um, I'm a workaholic, but I hate using that term because yeah. honestly, I've never had a day, not a single day in reporting or teaching where I'm like, I hate it today. It feels like something I would want to do for free. And in the sake of you know, my NewsHawk job, I practically do, you know, because newspaper, all newspapers, not just them, they don't pay very well in small right. towns. Um, I would do it for nothing because it feels meaningful and important and I love it. And of course the teaching is, you know, it's different, pays much better, but it's, again, we would do it for nothing if we, if we had to, because we, we love it and nothing feels like work when you're a journalist, I, I, it's so important. It feels like responsibility and I get some compensation for this. And I, you know, just to wrap it up, it sort of all goes back to the beginning. And I, I um, you know, that the love of that byline, you know, seeing your byline on the channels the first time that remember we used to get it delivered and <laughs> the, the editors would show up in the morning and carry the stacks and put mm -hmm. them in the bins and, and do that. And, and just you'd hand your work to somebody. I remember you showed the paper, that movie in class, and it was like very true, even though that was this huge dramaticized storyline, but that feeling of giving birth, uh, like, like I created something and here's what I created. You and reinvent a new product every single day from beginning yes. to end, every and single day. Who else, what other industry can say that? <laughs> and the product's gotta be good exactly. and accurate and balanced and fair. Yes. And if you've got one word in there that people think is biased, you're just horrible, a horrible person that needs to be canceled. No, I'm sorry. Uh, but I just, you know, you know this, Patricia, and I know it, you've heard it, but you really can't hear it enough. You deserve to be told every day until your final day what a profound impact you've had, not just on me, but on so many other students who are better people and better journalists because they walked into your your classroom that is not hyperbole i have nothing to gain by saying these things to you i am saying them because i feel like one of my purposes in life is to let people know what incredible public service you gave to people and you don't have to like me, the Josh, there's a million other people out there that you've influenced. And it's just so profound. And I, I when I hear you talk about imposter syndrome, it blows <laughs> my mind. It blows my mind because I've always seen you as this person on this pedestal. Like it's Patricia, you know, like you, 
she does everything right, you know? And, and so it's, I mean, it's really great that you talk about that. And I think you've just had this incredible, profound experience and I look forward to seeing what you're, you're doing now. I mean, can you, a couple lines, what are you going to do next? Do you have any yeah, I've plans? Had a year, I've had a year to think about it. And, um, you know, I like new experiences. I, I feel like I've taught for 30 years. I don't really want to do that anymore. I don't want to go back to report. It's just re- reporting is just too hard. You know, it's, it's, I don't want, I don't want to work that hard anymore. I mean, I've been in this industry for over 45 years. So, um, but what I decided I do want to do is pull on a skill um, that we actually haven't talked about. And, and that is um, editing. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just a part of my brain that really loves sitting down with a piece of copy, what we call copy in the newspaper business and editing it and making it better. Um, you know, you'd hear a lot about flow. Um, you know, you just get involved in something and the time goes so quickly. Um, so that's what I'm going to be pursuing. I just completed a contract with, um, Santa Barbara city college doing some writing for them. Um, but mostly editing, actually a little bit of writing, but, you know, creating documents where I took certain documents and folded them in the other. And so I think I'm going to be reestablishing myself as, um, as an editor and I'll be looking for a few clients. Um, I don't want to work full time. I I have, you know, thank God for pensions. I don't, I don't need to work full time. Um, but it's honestly a little hard from going from the kind of intensity that I had in my professional life. Um, to the, you know, relaxation of retirement. I've had a year of it. It was great. Um, but honestly, I'm ready to get back to work and get to do some work. So well, I, I'm still looking about, but it'll be, I'm going to be an editor. That's what I want to do. Well, you're the only editor I know who could take out half the words in a story, not add a single word and have the story be better than the original draft. And, an, was- and an associate press style too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can't pay you. That would be unethical, but maybe I'll, I'll let you edit my stories, you know, on the side before I turn them in. Cause I know, uh, I love a good editor. Um, they make us all look better and, um, they save us from so yeah. much, so much trouble. They should be very invisible, but they, they're very important. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Daniel Jimenez, one of your other prodigies, like he's working to this day as an editor. And I think it's so funny that he and I are still calling about like we're editors you know reporters and have done editing over the years but you're not telling your audience is how competitive the two of you guys were <laughs> and you know what i have to tell you i'm both better for it you know yeah we're so different and yet you know both of y'all took very different avenues in journalism and i think you know both went out in the world much better because of having each other as peers Oh, yes, yes. We're still competitive, but with old age, we've we've relaxed a little bit. But thank you, Patricia. Thank you for everything you've done for me, for all your students, um, and for doing this uh, interview and having a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Well, it's been fun talking with you, Josh. And um, I just want to thank you for your continued work at Santa Barbara City College. Um, Josh, by the way, is an enormously popular instructor. I've had the opportunity to evaluate him as department chair several times, and his students just love him. And now he has taken his teaching to um, Cal State University Northridge, teaching classes there at the four-year level. Um, I understand that you took a couple of classes there, and they snapped you up as an instructor. So, um, 
you know, you're in the trenches in, in a lot of different ways. I'm, I'm very proud of what you've accomplished. And to tell you the truth, if I've had just a little bit of um, responsibility for that, it, it makes me very happy. Yes. Well, thank you. I mean, you've had a lot of responsibility for that, um, for sure, because I don't know where I'd be if I had not taken that journalism course back in whatever it was in the, er the early 90s. Uh, but yes, yes, thank you. And I'm falling back in love with school myself. Like being a student is so much fun again. So I've been doing that and I'm going to continue to do it. So thanks a lot, Patricia. I appreciate your time and, and everything you do. And Have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye.